going to have a strange podcast schedule this week, the last week where we'll have episodes. We'll have podcasts today, obviously. We'll have one on Wednesday. We will not have one on Tuesday, and Wednesday probably will be the last of 2023. It is today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Leila Tassi, who has a surprise for her final appearance on this podcast, but you have to listen to the end to get to it. First up, let's talk about some stuff. Every year at budget time, the Ohio House and Senate fumble all over themselves trying to show Ohioans that they are cutting taxes. Of course, a lot of those taxes pay for services for people in need. When it comes to billing Ohioans to help their wealthy buddies who fund their campaigns, legislators don't hesitate to boost our tax bill. Laura, what tax increase, they're calling it a fee, did the Ohio Senate abruptly approve with almost no discussion before they left town last week? And who, surprise, surprise, benefits? I bet you'll never guess. It's the utility companies. So... This is pretty crazy. I mean, even for the state legislature, but the Ohio Environmental Council Action Fund summed out, summed up what happened on this day on on Wednesday, I believe. In less than 48 hours, with little to no public notice, the Ohio legislature voted to raise Ohioans' utility bills to fund private corporations. That's the be-all, end-all of this. And it is a tax because if you don't have a choice on whether to pay it, that's not a fee. So what they did is the state general assembly passes legislation on Wednesday. They induced, introduced it just one day before on Tuesday, and gas companies can charge customers up to sixty-seven million dollars a year. That's an estimate to build pipelines to speculative project sites. Anything that they want to be developed is kind of a mega project, and the goal is to make the property enticing for developers. But they have no guarantee anything will ever get built. They say that large-scale developers don't want to consider sites that can't immediately deliver water, gas, sewer, and electricity. But the weird thing is they kept pointing to Intel and the chip manufacturer as the kind of projects they want to land, but that got landed without utilities there. Yeah, this is building pipelines to nowhere. This is complete fiction. This is Matt Huffman's Senate. They claim they cut your taxes when it would, might help people in need. Like if you had a little bit more in the income tax category, maybe you could fix the unemployment office, which is hopelessly broken. But that helps poor people, right? So they don't do that. What they do is they help their wealthy buddies. They have been in the pocket of the utilities forever. HB6, the bribery scandal proved it. And what's so sleazy about this is they, again, do it furtively. It's a last minute thing. They shove it through. They call it a fee when it is clearly a tax. And it and it's for nothing. It's completely speculative. <laughs> there is no project. We're just going to build electric lines and pipelines to, to the middle of nowhere and hope somebody wants to use them. Yeah, it makes very little sense. Obviously, it's not like people were clamoring for this. This is a you know, we've talked in the past about lobbyists calling and saying this is what we want done. And then the legislators step to it and say, okay, how high do you want me to jump? This actually did not have unanimous Republican support. Senator Antani said that this was clearly a tax, which 
I'm glad it is clearly a tax. It yeah, is. There's no doubt is. about it. They just raise your taxes, just like the Cuyahoga County Council did. There's no mistaking it. Matt Huffman furtively raised your taxes and is trying to pretend they did not. And it's to benefit the utility companies who have bought and paid for this state forever. It's another mark against this gerrymandered legislature and how it does not serve the residents. It just serves the wealthy interests. Shame, shame, shame. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Governor Mike DeWine sat down with reporters last week for his end of the year chat and discussed his thoughts on a variety of legislative actions headed his way, as well as his disappointment with inaction on one front. Lisa, what were his thoughts? Yeah, he had quite a few thoughts, and none of them were very concrete, I I must say. But anyway, he said that he was disappointed that the House adjourned without passing House Bill 86, which would have opened medical marijuana dispensaries for recreational sale almost immediately or within 90 days of the bill being signed. He wants to hold off a surge in the black market for marijuana. Um, Also, he announced that uh, James Canepa was named superintendent of the new division of cannabis control. He spent six years as the superintendent of liquor control, and he helped modernize liquor inventory systems there. He established the bottle lotteries, which I love but never win, and also the barrel programs, and he begins his job on January 1st. He also also talked about a host of other bills. Um, House Bill 201, we just talked about that a little bit. It, basically, House Bill 201 bans electric vehicle mandates, but it also allows those natural gas companies that we just talked about to charge $78 million a year for uh, building pipelines to project sites. So he says he won't say if he's going to sign House Bill 201, but he says we do have to build out stations and infrastructure for electric vehicles to thrive. On Amtrak funding, he's kind of been reluctant. Um, We did get money for additional studies. He says that expansion in Ohio would only work if trains on the 3C and D line, Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton are fast or faster than driving. He said they can't average 34 miles an hour to work. On the controversial Senate Bill 83, the Jerry Serino's bill for higher education reforms, DeWine, again, won't say if he'll sign this bill, but he did say that sometimes there's a tendency to have some speech more protected than other speech on campus, and he feels like that's a big mistake. House Bill 68, this one bans uh, gender-affirming care for minors and bans trans athletes from participating in women's sports. He did say he's going to take a hard, hard look at this bill. He has 10 days to sign it, veto it, or it can become law without his signature. And then we talked about this at length last week about the local anti-tobacco bans. He was very disappointed that his veto was overridden. But this still has to pass the Senate on a three-fifths vote, which is 20 of the 33 senators. Yeah, but let's face it. The senator is going to go with the tobacco companies over over young children. They don't care about the kids. They care about the money. And the, the tobacco industry clearly has gotten into the pockets of the lawmakers. This is we talked about it last week. It's a despicable mm-hmm. thing they're doing to help the tobacco companies that is going to result in death and suffering all through Ohio. The um, the fact that he's saying he's going to take a, a look at the Jerry Serino bill, that's disappointing because that is not what Mike DeWine has stood for in his career. He's a guy that believes in democracy and good government, and this is clearly a move to kind of authoritarian campuses. I was hoping he would veto that one, but we'll see. 
What did he say about marijuana? Well, um, he did say, again, that he he really wants to um, get this House Bill 86 passed, uh, but there's a bill in the House, I think it's House Bill 345, which is completely different, and actually that's in my opinion, the better bill because it doesn't touch anything except it just reallocates the way the tax revenues go. So um, he did say that um, he wanted it to be effective immediately instead of 90 days, but you have to pass that with a supermajority in both chambers with an emergency clause. So I don't think that's probably going to happen. Although they have the supermajorities and they haven't hesitated to use them on a bunch of sleazy things, maybe for something positive, they could get it together. You're listening to Today in Ohio. An embattled Ohio legislator from South Euclid fired back at his critics late last week, arguing that he does not deserve the restrictions that have been placed upon him. Layla, did he make a good case? Uh, We're talking about State Representative Elliot Forehand. He's been accused of all kinds of abusive and threatening behavior toward colleagues who are women. Forehand sent a 13-page memo to House Minority Leader Allison Russo last week. She's the top House Democrat. He was responding point by point to a memo that Russo had released last month detailing an internal caucus investigation into Forehand's behavior. He said in his memo that the incidents in question were mischaracterized. And he doesn't remember two of them. He he took issue with Russo's memo describing his behavior as potentially violent when then none of the things he's actually accused of were physically violent. And he once again denied visiting State Representative Juanita Brent's home last month, which Brent has said prompted her to file a police report and seek a court order that bars him from being near her except during official legislative business. In his letter to Russo, he said that she should amend her words from her memo to correct the record and ameliorate the harm that's been done to him and his reputation. He mentioned two Republican lawmakers, one of whom was accused of assaulting a protester. The other was accused of assaulting a spouse, but neither was punished, he said. Forehand, meanwhile, lost his committee assignments, saw his statehouse access badged, revoked. His legislative aid was reassigned and he lost his office last month. So that's what he's all tangled up in knots about. It's interesting that he's trying to argue, I have no signs of violence, because you can understand why people are uncomfortable with based on his words. Yes, he has not done anything violent, but that doesn't mean the people that are hearing him don't have reason to fear. He's also discussing um, other other his colleagues who didn't get punished as hard. I wonder, were they Republicans, I wonder, because the Republican Party is not as aggressive in this kind of thing. I think they are. I I believe they are. Yeah. I mean, the the Democrats wasted no time in trying to take care of this because I think they're, they they have more of a conscience than we've seen from the Republican lawmakers in the Statehouse. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The refusal by Shaker Heights to give or sell a departing police canine officer, his longtime companion, Dog, brought national scorn, probably international. City officials finally buckled to the pressure Friday. Laura, it always amazes me. This had to end this way. It was just how much of a beating would they take before they finally yielded? How does this story end? Well, it does have a happy ending, so I'm glad for that. But you're right. I'm not sure why it required so much public pressure to get this done. This is canine Igor. He's a six-year-old German shepherd. He gets to go home and live with his handler in Brunswick instead of being housed at a kennel. And they reached this agreement after Officer Chad Hagen 
wanted to transfer to a different department to be to Brunswick to be sorry he's from Brunswick to transfer to Berea to be closer to his family because that's a long drive every day from Brunswick to Shaker Heights the weird thing is Shaker Heights said they didn't have the ability to grant Chad Hagen his dog because something in state law and and a city ordinance that barred officers from gaining the custody of or the canine officer companions once they leave the department. So all they had to do was change their city ordinance so that they could make this happen. But this is the second time we've talked about a similar fight over a canine this year, because in July, I believe it was Bedford Heights, an officer sued the city over his dog Bosco because he wasn't being allowed to keep it. And it's just like, this makes sense. The dog is bonded with the officer. Figure out a way to let him take him home. Well, and anybody looking at this from the outside knew it would end this way. He was going to get the dog. The minute this hit the news, international score and lots of pressure. And in their press release, Shaker Heights was not really showing much humility. They're saying it was unfair, the beating that the chief took because this was the Shaker law. Yeah, is the law. You change the law. That's what you do when you're trying to do the right thing. What surprised me is how long it took them, especially given, like you said, they had another example that was fresh in their minds of just how bad you look when you try to keep the person away from the dog. And it's not like they're giving it to him. He's got to pay the the full amount of money it takes to replace the dog. Exactly. Lisa. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, that he he at first offered $10,000 for the dog, and they said no, but now he's got to pay to replace the dog and pay for the training for a new dog and a new canine officer. So uh, that has to but be they pointed collected, out. They collected $14,000 in donations on a GoFundMe page, and mm-hmm. If yeah. they had never gotten this notoriety, I don't know that they ever would have done a GoFundMe. Right? I know. So, it's, it's just, but it, it Shaker Heights looks terrible here. They look cruel and mean-spirited and venal. And all the guy wanted to do was be with his dog. <laughs> it was, I know. Like I, I do wish there But was it's not much. his dog. It yeah, is not his dog. But it's been his companion for six years, and it's who it's bonded to. Look, it, this had to end this way. Does anybody disagree that this was going to end this way? Well, Guaranteed. only because of public pressure. And I think the Bedford Heights dog, Bosco, was retired. This dog was still active and had several years of active duty left. Right, but they were going to put him in a kennel and house him there. That was going to cost the city a lot of money. Yeah, they weren't going to use them again. They were going to have them in a kennel. The whole thing is a mess in Shaker Heights. It, it, you know, ultimately did the right thing, but took forever for them. But to don't get to you that. wish there was as much public outcry against human stories and all of the stories like we're going to talk about next? I, it's just yes. like I'm so glad that people care about animals. I wish they cared about people as much. You're right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked last week about how bringing marijuana into Ohio for Michigan likely is not a violation of Ohio law, but because federal law prohibits marijuana, you could actually get in trouble with the feds, however unlikely. Lisa, what does Sherrod Brown say about the federal marijuana prohibition? Yeah, Senator Brown was at a Columbus campaign rally kicking off his campaign for Senate after formally filing for re-election when he was questioned by reporters. He said he would support legalizing recreational marijuana at the federal level. He said, I would vote for it. There have been several bills introduced in Congress, including one from Representative Dave Joyce, our Republican from Geauga County, to keep the feds from interfering with state laws on marijuana. 
marijuana. And there were also some bills about outright repeal, but none of these have progressed. Brown has been kind of circumspect about marijuana previously. Last year, he opposed wholesale legalization, but he supported decriminalization of those who had been busted for minor possession. But he did vote for issue two in the end after a lot of thinking and going back and forth. He says that state lawmakers need to leave issue two alone. J.D. Vance, his colleague in the Senate, says he's not a fan. He says existing federal laws should remain and the states can decide whether or not to legalize marijuana. Uh, Brown's opponents in the U.S. Senate election, the, the Republicans Matt Dolan, Bernie Moreno, and Frank LaRose, have all told the Youngstown Vindicator that they opposed issue two, which is no surprise there. No, because they're all party over people. They're going to do whatever the party dogma tells them to do. They've shown that their fealty is to the party, not their residents. Uh, Sherrod Brown wasn't saying he thinks a, a law is going to be proposed. He, would, he just said he would vote for it if it were. I, can anybody see our Congress mm-hmm. passing such a law to, de- to, to make marijuana legal across the land? No. Yeah, I don't see it either. I think it would become, I mean, they're so polarized, they would turn it into party nonsense instead of... Unless they figure out some federal taxation, you know, we're all for it. (laughs) Yeah, there is an economy to it. I just, I can't see it. I think what Joyce is trying to do is the most likely thing, that in states that legalize it, the Fed should stay out. But it's, it's a strange division we have where it is it is a federal crime and yet states are legalizing it left and right you're listening to today in ohio all right layla northeast ohio loves the metro parks and steve lit in a very very lengthy detailed story laid out the agency's capital projects for 2024 what can we expect to see in the new year? Steve told us about 19 capital projects worth $74.3 million. That figure represents the cost of phases or milestones in planning, design, construction, and renovation between now and 2026. But the total outlay outlay for Metro Parks is $19.7 million. The other 73% is coming from other sources, public partners and grants. The scale of the projects on the on this list ranges from a new playground at Huntington Beach and Bay Village to Cheers. That's the acronym for a 20-year project to use recycled sediment from the Cuyahoga River to create more than 60 acres of new parkland along Cleveland's east side lakefront. Also on the list is South Gordon Park. Metro Parks got $8 million from the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Foundation in July to upgrade that 48-acre park that it's leasing from the city of Cleveland. So that project will include improved connections to the St. Clair Superior neighborhood to the south. The list also includes Barge 225, the old home of the Hornblowers restaurant. That's an 8,800-square-foot barge that Metro Parks bought and had towed from North Coast Harbor to Wildwood Marina at the Euclid Creek Reservation this past summer. They plan on renovating it into a year-round education center. So the list includes lots and lots of trails and connectors. I'm really barely scratching the surface here with this little summary I'm giving you, but there's so much to digest in Steve's story. He goes really deep on the philosophy of the Metro Parks and how their their mission has evolved over the years. The goal with all of these projects is connectivity, to bring parks and trails closer to residents throughout the region and to better connect communities to each other, to downtown Cleveland, and to Lake Erie. The Metro Parks is really one of the rare subjects of 
consensus in Northeast Ohio. I mean, the tax, the most recent tax, which they actually worried wouldn't pass, had nearly 80% of the vote or something. And it was just overwhelming, something you don't see. And whenever I send out a text message or we do something like this, we hear from people about how proud they are of the Metro Parks. It's one of Cleveland's gleaming examples for the world on how to do something right. And under Brian Zimmerman, they've been very well managed. They keep taking on more and more projects. I did hear some complaining that Zimmerman walked away from the East Cleveland project because the East Cleveland government was completely dysfunctional. Mm. But you can understand why he did. They were dysfunctional. (laughs) Who wants to do business with the government that every other minute is recalling its mayor and and attacking each other like crazy? It's just a bright light. And Steve lays out a daunting schedule a project. It's really remarkable how much the Metro Parks has been able to leverage public money and grant dollars. You know, back in the in the fall, I bumped into CEO Brian Zimmerman at, at the grand opening for the Huntington Beach Playground, which is on this list. And we were chatting about hornblowers, Barge 225. And he mentioned that that project is so popular among sponsors that the cost of the Metro Parks was getting close to net zero for that for that project. I mean, that just really speaks to the talent they must have in that office among those whose job it is to sell their story and gain interest from potential funders. Well, after last week's sneaky passing of the sales tax increase by the county executive and the county council, people were sending notes saying Zimmerman should be the county executive because here's a guy Mm -hmm. who runs an agency that has zero debt. Now, of course, he's running a park system, not a giant county government, but the point's taken. He is managing all of what he's doing within the available money and without debt, whereas our sleazy county government operates very differently. Well, and he also gets projects over the finish line. Yeah. <laughs> he does. Yes. I mean, to, 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 to push back a little bit, there, the, the, uh, I mean, I know there's some controversy ar- around some of the projects that they work on, but n- it's not like trying to build a jail and pay for it with public money. So that it is a different animal, but I agree that he's he's been a terrific executive for them. I don't know. When you take what he's done at the zoo and the lakefront parks, and I mean, he's taken on some massive projects within their budget and he has pulled it off. My, You're right. And I don't think anybody could build the jail without figuring out a funding source. I just yearn for leadership in the county government that is attuned to the budget as Brian Zimmerman has been through his time here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How many juveniles have been accused of homicide actually taking someone's life in 2023 so far, setting a record? And let's talk about what stands out from these cases. Laura, this was overwhelming when we put it all together. It is. We're talking about 41 juveniles charged in 30 homicides so far this year. And this is so much more than it's been in the past. Um, 34 teens were charged all of last year. 2021, there was only two, 23. And before that, I mean, we were talking single digits. Just crime is up all over the place, and especially with the juvenile crime. We talked about teens committing carjackings like the Ohio State coach last week, and it's baffling all of these deaths, really, and they seem so senseless. We're talking about 14, 15, 16-year-olds. There are 
drive-by shootings, basketball court disputes, drug deals gone bad, people being shot on bikes and out of cars. There's a three-year-old who died, a mom of six. It seems incredibly senseless when you're reading these like very short snippets that our reporters put together. But why in the world do these kids have guns? They are obviously do not have fully mature brains and they are just reacting to situations by killing people. Right. And once they do this, they're done. They're out of the juvenile system. They get put into the adult system and they've killed somebody. And so they are no longer considered kids you can reform. They're going to be locked up and they'll get out, most of them, but it'll be long after that maturity happens in their brains. That's the dangerous thing is these are these are people with brains that are quite immature to give them deadly weapons, make those so readily available. It's, it's just shocking to see that many children. I mean, these are children right. who are, who, whose lives have all but ended. Right. And, and they, they're ending people's lives and then they're ending their own life because of their actions. I mean, here's one that's just pretty typical. So a teenager accused of November, 2021, drive-by shooting death of a 24-year-old. That 24-year-old man was playing basketball at a park in Cleveland, and a gunman fired shots out of an open sliding door of a minivan as it drove by the basketball court. That kid was 14. And we don't know about this minivan, but my guess is it's probably stolen because a lot of these crimes involve carjacked cars. Yeah, and it's and these are kids that aren't thinking about the long-term consequences no. of their actions because their brains don't work that way yet. Right. They're just in it's the like moment. It's like life is a video game. They're just yeah. shooting each other up for something to do. Yeah, the reason we put it all together was to really show people the scope of what's happening. This is new. We have not seen this any time in the past ever. Kids this young in these numbers killing people. Uh, and it is frightening that we are doing nothing really to stop it. The gun laws are are out there making guns readily available. The gun manufacturers flood flood guns everywhere. And now we have this. You're listening to Today in Ohio. When Ernst & Young announced it was leaving the lakefront building that bears its name, we wondered what the new name would be. And Lisa, now we know. What is it? It's going to be renamed the Oswald Tower for its new tenants. Ernst & Young didn't uh, renew their lease. They moved to no uh, the North Point Complex at East 9th and Lakeside right across from City Hall. So the Oswald companies are moving from their headquarters at the Oswald Center building at 1100 Superior. The move should be complete sometime next year. They're an insurance broker, established in Cleveland in 1893. They've been in business 130 years. They have 450 employees, 350 at this downtown headquarters, and they'll be moving to their new building. Their workers, interestingly, their workers are on a hybrid schedule. So they're only in the office about two to three times a week. So any office move of any size is kind of interesting in this atmosphere. Uh, Oswald CEO Robert Klonk says he's proud to continue calling Cleveland home. He's committed to downtown Cleveland, and he's thrilled to work with the Wolstein Group, which owns a, a fair amount of the East Blank of the East Bank of the Flats development. Um, yeah, so pretty interesting to see somebody not moving out but moving somewhere else. Okay, listening to today in Ohio. Just saw Bolton that the Pope has okayed priests blessing same-sex couples. Wow. Wonder how that's going over with the Cleveland Bishop. 
<laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. When, when we're one week from Christmas, so let's end with a holiday story. Where does Cleveland get all the poinsettias that Grace City buildings, Layla? 4,000 poinsettias are grown each year in the Rockefeller Park greenhouse, which is believed to be one of the last large city-run greenhouses in the country. Reporter Courtney Astolfi visited the greenhouse at the end of November as the greenhouse staff was preparing for their annual poinsettia fund fundraiser where they sell these beauties to the public for $5 a piece. And many more of the plants are then taken to adorn City Hall and public auditorium for the holidays. The rest remain at the greenhouse where visitors can come and enjoy them through early January. By that time, they're about two or 3,000 left, and they're grouped in these large clusters. They line the walkways. They're stacked almost vertically along rock walls. The photos are gorgeous that went with Courtney's story. It's the most visited time of the year for the greenhouse, you can imagine. It's a great place to stage a photo for a Christmas card. Sometimes artists come and station their easels there. The greenhouse staff grow these these poinsettias from tiny plugs, no larger than a finger. Those are delivered midsummer, and the greenhouse staff spends all those months nurturing them. And poinsettias aren't really the most difficult plant to grow, but they can be kind of finicky. The horticulturist at the greenhouse told Courtney about how one year new exterior security lights provided too much light inside the greenhouse, and that jeopardized that year's display because the poinsettia requires shorter, darker days for its colors to fully develop. So interesting. And this year, the boilers at the greenhouse took a while to get up and running because they're so old. So because these plants are native to Mexico and they're, they're, they like the warmth, it was colder in the greenhouse than the plants typically like, but they certainly survived. You can see it in the photos. Go see it for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, they're beautiful photos. All right, sticking with the holiday theme, our editorial board every year produces holiday Christmas carols where they have some fun with news events to the tunes of popular carols. Layla is going to sing one that she has drafted. Layla, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> well, I, I want to preface this by saying that I wrote this last night while drinking a Christmas ale. So this is the world premiere of this carol. No one has seen it, not even Betsy Sullivan. I sent it to her this morning. But this is to the tune of Away in a Manger, and it is called Away at a Summit. <laughs> one second here. Away at a summit about climate change. Our county executive is there, it's strange. I do not deny that the science is true. But out in Dubai, what can Chris Ronane do? <laughs> the policy makers, the entrepreneurs, went hoping their lobbying would open doors. The scientists, doctors, and national heads were all forced to mingle with Ronane instead. He bragged <laughs> on a panel about our county's goal to cut our emissions right down to zero. But taking that long flight way out to Dubai pumped 4.1 metric tons into the sky. <laughs> our homeless are suffering with 
about a bed. The kids at Jane Edna are so poorly fed. The rate of addiction is tragically high. But Chris Ronan can't help. He's still in Dubai. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What a great way to end. Well done. You'll be able to read that, Carol, when we publish them at the end of the week. That's it for the Monday episode. Like I said, there won't be a Tuesday episode. We'll be back Wednesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.